You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis. On this week's show, George Eaton, Harry Lambert and Anusha Kalian talk about Ed Miliband's fortunes and Labour's route to the 2015 election. I discuss the murder of Lee Rigby and whether Facebook should be supplying information to our security services with Ian Steadman. And John Elledge and I discuss private schools and whether they should really have charitable status. Hello, I'm Harry Lambert, editor of May 2015, and I'm joined this week by George Eaton, political editor of The New Statesman, and Anoush Shakilian, our Staggers editor, to discuss the week in politics. George, let's start with you and your politics column this week. What is it that you said? Well, I look at why, um, after the worst period of his leadership, Ed Miliband has got his mojo back, as um, one of his advisors put it to me. So he's feeling uh, a sense of renewed confidence, and that's that's because he's... Rather than abandoning his political project, he's reaffirmed his faith in it. Um, and he's doubled down on his strategy of siding with the many against the few. So you saw this with his attack on Sports Direct over their use of zero-hours contracts, um, his rebuke to opponents of the mansion tax, his attack on this week on cowboy employment agencies, and then opening this new front against private schools by saying they will have to meet new regulations if they're to keep their um, tax reliefs. So the consequence of that is that he is going to fight the election on his own terms. Uh, he will own victory and he will own defeat. And on his newfound confidence, during the rumours of a plot, which never really, it seemed, happened, you did see Ed Miliband looking quite shaken on air when he was asked about these things. What do you think changed in the last fortnight? I think he considered, contemplated the possibility that his project would end and that he would be sort of beaten into submission by his enemies. And and so that line that he started his fight back speech with, the, the Nietzsche line, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, I mean, not everyone agreed with it, but I think it describes how he felt. So he suddenly realised how high the stakes were and decided I'm going to come out fighting. And as I say in the column, it also helps that he has some of his long-standing allies closer to him. So he brought in Lucy Powell, who ran his, uh, helped run his leadership campaign, who served as his chief of staff, um, he's appointed her as vice chair of the election campaign, uh, but her role goes far beyond that. So she's now in charge of the of the Daily Grid, coordinating everyone. 
And the sense that I get from speaking to people is that because she understands Ed Miliband, she knows him very well, she understands how his office works, having served in there, she's brought greater decisiveness to the operation and it's become more efficient. The other figure he's brought in as a senior advisor is John Trickett, who is another long-standing ally who played an important role in his leadership campaign and who's a radical socialist and who encourages Miliband to pick fights with predatory companies, encourages him not to um, uh, not to be too moderate, not to be too cautious, but to come out swinging. And uh, one strategist explained in part the reason why he's been on the offensive um, is because they, they've recognised how Farage and, and Alex Salmond have managed to bracket Miliband with David Cameron and Nick Clegg as part of the Westminster establishment, or Lib Lab Con as... Uh, UKIP uh, members put it. Uh, and they recognise that as a PPE graduate, as a former special advisor, he's never going to look like a social outsider. So it's even more important for him to adopt distinct and radical positions on the economy to try to differentiate himself from Cameron and to say, look, we're not all the same. Here are the dividing lines. And Anish, do you think that the Labour Party are excited about finding the election with their Miliband now or that it is more that they're just content and looking forward I, I don't think they're content yet and definitely you still have a bit of that residual gloom among Labour MPs and Labour staffers who I've spoken to. Um, the reason for this is because often there, there needs to be a sort of trickle-down effect from the leadership office. Right. So even if, you know, Ed Miliband is feeling confident and he's hired all these new advisers, it's going to take a bit of time for some of the more sceptical MPs who, you know, they, they've had a bit of a rough ride, particularly with their party being in such turmoil, to... Um, to adopt that same confidence. So I think the challenge for Ed Miliband now, yes, he is sort of putting down his dividing lines and being a bit more radical in his uh, approach and particularly in communicating what his policies are, which has always been his problem. I think now he really needs to reach out to those um, backbenchers, particularly who feel a bit neglected. I mean, it's the same with the Tories as well. You have these backbenchers who... um, who feel like that their leaders don't speak to them or take advice from them. I know that, um, you know, Simon Danchuk, who's a bit of a critic of Ed Miliband, is quite pleased because this private schools policy is something that he he proposed a while ago in, in some form. So I think, you know, that's an example of someone actually feeling like they're being listened to, or at least their party is moving in the direction that, you know, it's a, that they've been keen on for a while and feel like Ed Miliband's had a bit of a delayed reaction. And, and just on him communicating, I spoke mm. this week with Margaret Hodge, in the New Statesman, and she said, the thing Ed really needs to do is relax and be yourself. And I said, what one thing would you say he needs to do? What one thing would you say he needs to do to communicate better? George? I think he does need to show more optimism. I think he does need to inspire people. Um, It's right that he highlights a lot of the problems with the economy that both main parties shied away from during the the new Labour era and that the Conservatives are still ignoring but as one MP put it to me this week, you know, people don't want to be reminded how bad their lives are. That they know their problems. They want a leader who can galvanise them, who can uh, restore a sense of positivity and a sense of what's possible, and that there can be change. Um, I think. I think as John Crudus and Chukwu uh, Muno often point out, your Labour wins big when it owns the future, when it defines what's to come, and it did that in 1945 with the. Uh, vision of uh, a welfare state and the NHS and a home fit for heroes after the Second World War. It did it in 1966 with Howard Wilson and the white heat of technology. And it did it in 1997 when Tony Blair talked of Britain as a young country and 
and New Labour was um, part of the, the cultural zeitgeist of Cool Britannia. And Miliband does need to find a way of um, a way of expressing his own project in those terms. And just Anoush, one quick thing. Um, well, he said it himself. I think he needs to get around the country more. So when he did his fight back speech, which was a couple of weeks ago now, he emphasised twice, actually, once during his speech and sort of a couple of times, actually, during his Q&A, that he would be taking this speech and his um, sort of fight for the country around the country. So rather than staying in Westminster, sort of that bunker mentality would, would end and he would go and uh, speak to the rest of the country. And I think he needs to do that. And Anoush, we've also had this week the Smith Commission who've come out with some proposals. What have they said? Well, the big um, recommendation from the Smith Commission, which was set up after the um, the no vote in Scotland to decide how, how much more power to devolve to Scotland, um, they want to give uh, Scotland full income tax raising powers, which is something that um, Labour initially didn't want. Um, it was something that the Tories did want, perhaps um, ironically, because the Tories are sort of less, have historically been less keen on, on devolving power to Scotland. Um, but so the, so, so the Labour Party have seen it um, as a bit of a political move by the Tories supporting this. Um, firstly, because it gives the right an opportunity to um, palm off these powers onto Scotland and then Scotland has to take responsibility themselves for difficult um, fiscal decisions. So they can't always blame it on Westminster. And secondly, because it gives more um, credence to this English votes for English laws idea that the Tories have been pushing for for a while, um, ever since... um, I mean, it was in their 2010 manifesto, so they've been keen on this for a while. So that led to Gordon Brown calling um, the idea a Tory trap. But now it's very difficult because... The Smith Commission has recommended it, so Labour have to take it on. And we had Jim Murphy on the radio. Jim Murphy is the um, Labour MP and candidate uh, for the SNP leadership. We had him on the radio saying, oh, you know, I've changed my mind. Labour's changed its mind because this is what the Scottish people want. But it, it is a tricky situation for Labour because it's not it's not what they wanted. Absolutely. George, how does Murphy deal with these proposals? Well, Murphy has embraced the proposal to devolve all income tax, and that was helpful to differentiate himself from the Labour leadership in Westminster and other senior Scottish figures. So you'll remember when Joanne Lamont, former Scottish Labour leader, resigned, she accused the National Party of treating the Scottish Party like a branch office of London. Jim Murphy needs to do something to show that he was prepared to stand up to um, his party's party's national leadership, uh, and also to show that Labour, having been the most... uh, centralist of the uh, of the three main parties was going to embrace devolution. Um, Gordon Brown and Alice Lodine have criticised the proposal to devolve all income tax, but um, Murphy's, Murphy's embraced it. And I think the view among um, Ed Miliband and Ed Bulls, who had some reservations over this, is that the priority at the moment is protecting as many seats as they can from the SNP with the general election uh, almost just five months away. Um, the big concern that Ed Balls has had is that uh, Labour could fall into the, the Tory trap, as, as, as his former boss Gordon Brown put it, um, because if Scotland has its own uh, powers over income tax, that could provide justification to stop Scottish MPs from voting on the UK-wide budget. The fear is that a Labour government with a small majority or with no majority would find it hard to pass a budget, which is one of the essential tests of a government. Uh, As things stand, the Smith Commission has said uh, Scottish MPs will retain 
full voting rights on the UK budget because uh, some powers such as the level of the personal allowance are still going to be determined in Westminster. Uh, but the Smith, Commission, Smith Commission actually doesn't have uh, sovereignty, ultimate power over this. Ultimately, the government of the day can can decide the law as it wishes. And so I think the fear is now that uh, if the Conservatives win the election, they'll be able to, to bring this proposal in. Um, and as they see it, ensure that future Labour governments are in office, but not in power because they're unable to pass budgets. And talking of the election, it's been another interesting week in polling. Uh, winning Scotland and uh, recovering from where they're currently polling is a key for Labour. Where do you guys think Labour will be by May in Scotland? Do you think they'll have recovered from their sort of mid-20s poll share? Do you think they'll have taken the fight back to the SNP? I think they'll be in a better position than they are now. It's normal for most leaders to get a bounce. I think inevitably, as the general election draws closer and as the memory of the referendum fades somewhat, voters will start to think, do I want a Labour government or do I want a Conservative government, uh, rather than the debate being defined by issues of uh, independence and autonomy. But I think the SNP will have their best Westminster election ever. I think Labour will lose seats to them. And I think what makes this election different from previous ones is that for the first time, the SNP are offering a really compelling reason to vote for them, which is, you know, let's make sure that uh, they keep their promises, that, that this legislation is, is, is passed, that there's no backsliding. And um, given that um, Scotland is going to become far more autonomous, you know, we are the, send us to Westminster as the best defenders of the country's interests. So, um, you know, make sure Team Scotland is represented in Westminster. And given the number of Labour voters, traditional Labour voters, who voted for the yes side in the referendum, it's 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 very easy to see how some of them will be persuaded to to back SNP in a, in a general election for the first time. And Anish, um, I think um, a lot of this depends on actually how Jim Murphy um, does because he's running for um, Scottish Labour leadership. Um, he's a popular figure up there, and it just depends on how much um, enthusiasm he can drum up um, among uh, Labour supporters in Scotland who are perhaps feeling quite disillusioned. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what he does um, in the run-up uh, to May. Indeed, well, we'll keep track of all those polls on may2015.com and the New Statesman. Thank you very much. I'm here with Ian Steadman and we're going to talk about Facebook and terrorism and privacy and law, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has all come into the news again, we've talked about this before, uh, this week in relation to the murder of Lee Rigby. Um, Ian, tell us what's happened. Yeah, the, uh, this week the Intelligence and Security Committee in the Commons uh, published uh, this is a cross-party investigation into the murder of Lee Rigby in May last year by... Uh, two Muslim extremists, uh, Michael Adebowali and Michael Adebelajo. Um It was a really horrifying event, and immediately afterwards there was a huge sort of post, uh, sort of uh, debrief looking into why this had happened. Um, and this report came out uh, after extensive interviews with people in the intelligence services and in the private sector, people like Facebook, um, because they wanted to figure out at what point had intelligence failed? Because these two guys had been 
watched for a while. They were not considered serious people of interest, but um, they they had known links to other extremist communities, and they'd been watched by seven different uh, intelligence agencies, apparently, um, not at the same time, but they'd been picked up. Mm. And this report... Um, Dis, uh, identified the one weak link here. The one thing that, if it had been different, would have uh, possibly led to the this this crime being prevented, being Facebook not passing on to MI5 that uh, Michael Adebowale had had his profile deleted several times. He joined and had deleted a few times um, for posting extreme extremist material. Um, and specifically, he he messaged a friend in a foreign country uh, uh, about a year before the attack, saying, "A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times." Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That he had thought about killing a soldier. Um, and so the report very clearly, I mean, actually, it doesn't say Facebook in the report. It actually says a social media network. Um, but it didn't take very long for basically everyone to deny it was them except for Facebook, which right. kind of gave the game away. Um, so this comes back to this old debate about um, what should we expect to be private? Um, how, um, I mean, the uh, Labour Party and the Tory Party, all to different degrees, uh, want f- more access to personal data and personal communications of, of citizens. Mm. Um, and it's this old debate of like, where does our right to privacy end and where does the state's right to know about potential threats begin? As it stands at the moment, Facebook is a private company. It's not even a private yeah. British company. And it's based in the US. That's and very it's based key. In the US. Yeah, it has no legal obligation to listen to this in any way whatsoever. Um, what off- it does actually, I mean, Facebook does a lot of cooperative work with uh, law enforcement agencies around the world for stuff like. Um, well, the way stuff is caught on Facebook that's bad, that's possibly illegal or just immoral, is they have a bunch of algorithms that scan for like keywords used in certain contexts mm. and stuff like that. That often gets always flagged by users as extreme or, or otherwise illegal. That gets passed up to a human moderation team who then assess it and decide whether it's like actually a problem or not. Um, oh, I don't know. And there, there are various, aren't there? There are various kind of. Um, uh, I feel like urban myths about Facebook and this kind of thing that ha- some of them perhaps have currency, some of them don't. The one that gets talked about a lot is pictures of women breastfeeding. Yes. Isn't it? That you, you know, you see topless pictures, republications of, um, you know, page three or whatever all over Facebook, but your mum tries to upload a picture yeah. of her, you know, an old picture of her breastfeeding and that gets taken down immediately. Yeah. The extent to which that happens or whether people now just talk about it happening we're not sure but that's the kind of thing well, you it mean, does isn't it? it does yeah. happen but the, the thing is here it's like facebook has you know its job is to provide this platform that they want people to come to and spend time on and uh sort of allows themselves to be advertised that that's what facebook is in, in is in its interest but um what they want to do is um they decide at the moment when they see something illegal or whatever like they see someone posting about uh 
perhaps they set up an anti-Semitic hate group on fa- like a, a group that people can join on mm-hmm. Facebook. That will get flagged and shut down. But that at the moment, Facebook just doesn't tell anyone. In, they, they shut yeah. it down, but they so don't like you know, uh, Holocaust denial is illegal in Austria. But if they shut, if Facebook shuts down a Facebook group that is about denying the Holocaust and it's filled with Austrian people, um, Facebook isn't going to tell the Austrian authorities about that. It's just going to. To, to delete it and that was what was identified by this report um, as being kind of the weak chain is that Facebook currently does sort of annoys both privacy advocates and state security advocates because privacy advocates don't like the fact that Facebook monitors everything you do on Facebook mm. even your private correspondence because that's how it figures out what to advertise to you but also it annoys um, like the security services because they know Facebook is an extremely effective um, probably more effective than most spies Groups, well, basically. people are putting all their data yeah, on there, aren't they? So but they don't choose to hand that on to anyone yeah. who can actually, like, in this instance, prevent possibly a terrorist attack. Um, and so, so Malcolm Rifkins, who's the chair of the committee, is like very clear that um, they, there is a moral responsibility here for Facebook to pass this stuff on. And Facebook, of course, is like, hell no, this is you're trying to make us like an arm of MI5, and mm. that's not our job. Um, it's it's a very emotive issue. I mean, Lee Rigby's sister said that Facebook had blood on their hands. Like it's it's and it's understandable to, mm. to be really emotional about this because it, it could have stopped it. But um, there are some like big issues to consider here about whether that's the most effective way to combat terrorism. What's your sense in sort of the way the wind is blowing here? Is anything going to result from this report? Or um, is... Probably not. I mean, the, the key thing to think about here is that this comes in the wider context of um, Theresa May has for a long time pushed this so-called Snoopers Charter. Um, which which is, can I just say, is that not something that was on the thick of it? Every time I hear that phrase, the Snoopers <laughs> Charter, I'm sure that was... It's, uh, it's, it sounds like it, but it's uh, it's no laughing matter, I can yeah. guarantee that. Um, it's, uh, it's essentially, it's kind of trying to, you know, the Snowden leaks kind of revealed that everything digital that we do in terms of communications is kind of monitored as it is. The Snoopers Charter is trying to make that a bit more open, a bit more legal. Um in its simplest form. But um, there's pushback because there's a, a strong sort of pro-privacy wing within the Tory party. Um, so they've been kind of passing bits of it bit by bit to try and expand it slowly. And the latest raft of anti-terror legislation, which includes data retention changes, uh, was published Wednesday, the day after this mm. uh, Intelligence Security Committee report. Uh, and... The Guardian had a fantastic quote from an unnamed executive in Silicon Valley. They went to Silicon Valley and were like, what do you guys think about the British government? Yet again, telling you guys that you're facilitating terrorism. And this executive was like, ah, good timing. (laughs) It's like, it's hard not to be really cynical about these things. Like, um, I think that the British state has generally a very institutional lust for data and uh, it will do anything for it but really the more effective thing is that the report was also very damning of the government uh, policies and schemes to try and dissuade people from getting involved in extremism in any way in the first place so maybe we've got to think like instead of violating everyone's privacy maybe it's better to think we should tackle the root cause before they get to facebook yeah, yeah. exactly that does so uh, yeah because i have to say the way the way this report's been reported a lot is that if only facebook had done this everything would have been fine yeah Whereas clearly course, that's not how any you, event happens it's a complex web of com- you know motivations and all that kind of thing yeah, absolutely i mean facebook could still give the mi5 absolutely everything that happens on facebook you're still going to get people committing terrorist attacks it's it's not going to be a panacea thanks very much ian
I'm here with John Elledge and we're going to discuss an interesting quirk of the way private schools work. So we're talking about independent fee-paying schools, which you may or may not know, many of whom have charitable status. Why is this, John? It's largely a historic thing, really. I mean, a lot of the, the more famous private schools out there did genuinely start as charitable institutions that were established in, you know, 1500 or, or whenever to educate poor local boys. The Eatons and Harrows Indeed, of the world, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of, so that became an established uh, way of doing these things, uh, which has had this sort of odd side effect of, you know, five centuries later, now there are these incredibly exclusive schools charging, you know, 20 or 30,000 pounds a year that are almost entirely the preserve of the very, very rich. Um, and they're still technically recognised as charities. The fact that Eton is a charity is in is on the face of it a, a bit odd in some ways. And the reason these schools desire this charitable status is because it comes with tax breaks, right? It does. It's um, yes, you get you get quite a lot of tax breaks if you're you're a charity that you just don't have as a as a private business. You don't you're not liable for corporation tax, which is you know quite a helpful thing. Um, but one side effect of this is that the, these schools are now charging very high fees, they're ex- educating the very rich, um, and they're still charities, and it's not altogether clear that this is, this is working for anybody, really. Because we'd sort of imagine that in exchange for the charitable status and the tax breaks, they would, there'd be some kind of social mission, some kind of uh, other intangible but present benefit in exchange, right? Indeed, yeah. I mean... The idea is that they're because they are they are on some kind of social mission to sort of educate the the bright young things of, of British society that they are therefore worthy of this charitable status. But it's not entirely clear that they're kind of putting enough back into the pot. Um, there's been a lot of pressure on schools down the years to to do more to justify this charitable status by you know, sharing facilities or playing fields with local schools is one route, or you know sponsoring an academy perhaps is is another thing that's been tried. Um, and we've kind of ended up in this situation where nobody's very happy because those who are against the idea of private education for obvious reasons think this is a little bit cheeky. Um, but also the schools themselves are getting increasingly frustrated by the fact that that their customers are, are the parents. They're the people they feel that they're serving. But they're coming under constant pressure to do more for, for people outside that circle. And, you know, obviously, if you're, you're sending your kids to, to Eton for £30,000 a year, you're going to be a bit miffed when Eton is then spending a certain amount of those fees on, on looking after the children of people who haven't paid those fees. Mm. So, I see. So in actual fact, this isn't really working for anybody, let alone the, the parents of the people who are putting the money in the pot in the first place. Well, I personally think that it's it's particularly not working for the parents who are paying these fees, because apart from anything else, it's many of these schools are not particularly well run. Mm. Um, you know, if, the way most businesses work is that they'll kind of, they'll look at their costs and they'll look at their revenues and they'll try and make sure the revenues are higher than their costs. Schools have slightly been insulated from this because they know that, you know, they, they don't need to make a profit. Right. They can they can pour the money into whatever they want and they can just up the fees at the end of the year. So I think this has actually been, because they don't have that sort of business attitude, it means they have very poor cost control. They've spent a lot of money on things that they possibly don't need, such as extra swimming pools or concert halls and so on. Not because they're going to have any real educational advantage, but because... If you have an extra swimming pool and you have a, a concert hall uh, and you have very, very small class sizes, these are the kind of things that look good in the brochure when you're recruiting the next generation of parents. 
So the fees have got higher and higher and higher. Um, and where once, you know, you know, 20 years ago, private schooling was something that was kind of open to, to the reasonably affluent aspirational middle classes if they were to choose it now you basically have to be an investment banker or an oligarch or you can't you can't get near some of the the fees that these schools are charging and i know some of our listeners many of our readers will say well you know why why care about this this is a kind of this is a minute point shouldn't we just be abolishing private education anyway but surely I, i mean i would say is is this not the case that as you say some badly run schools are being insulated from the effect of their own incompetency, right? I, I think that's that's true. I mean, there's, there's kind of two things to say there, really. I mean, why should we care? Well, I, I think the reason for caring is that at the moment, these, these educational institutions that, that exist mostly to serve the incredibly rich are getting certain advantages that, you know, some would say they don't really deserve. Mm. Um, but... You know, I don't think there's any appetite to sort of go the whole way and actually ab- abolish private school education. I mean, that was that was still something that would seriously be discussed on the left even 20, 30 years ago. But nobody talks about doing that now. So, you know, I think we have to just accept that private schools are, are a fact of life. Um, so the question becomes, you know, why why are we letting them have these tax breaks? Yeah. Um, the other thing is that, you know, from the... These are not people who, who generally get enormous amounts of sympathy, the ultra-rich. But let's, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment and ask, are they being ripped off? Um, because, you know, they, 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 firstly, because private schooling is not actually that much better than state schooling. Once you take sort of the parental background and you know, income mm. into account, um, you, you're sort of buying access to, to a certain view of the world and a certain network more than you're buying access to, to A-level results. Um, but you have to ask, you know, why are these schools really worth the sort of fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand pounds a year they're being charged? I don't, I don't think they they really need to charge those fees. I think they've only got there because because they had charitable status, because they don't think of themselves as businesses. They're not run by people who have the first idea about how to how to run a business or how to sort of account for their costs. So they've just let they've just let the amount of money they're spending spiral out of control, knowing full well that they can just keep charging the parents more and more money. I think in the long term, this is actually going to do the, the private school sector itself quite a lot of damage because where once the middle classes will be quite defensive about private schools because they aspire to them mm. themselves, um, now they've been totally priced out the market. And there's a lot of schools out there that are basically surviving on the children of you know, Russian oligarchs or, or, or rich Chinese families. It's a totally different sector to where to the kind of thing it was even twenty years ago. So it's a not dissimilar thing to things we've seen in other places, such as, for instance, the London housing market, where we're not even talking about, you know, a, a well-off person you might know in your real life. This is for most people unimaginable wealth. Indeed, I mean, if you imagine you've got you've got two kids and you want to send them to private schools, you're probably looking at sort of you know it could. £30,000 a year would not be an unlikely figure. Mm. That's the kind of disposable income you do basically have to be incredibly rich to have lying around the place. Well, that's more than the average wage. That's, yes, yeah, substantially you know. <laughs> more than the average wage. <laughs> for one um, year, for one child, yeah. I mean, there, there is a danger that, you know, we're, 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 as with the London housing market, in fact, this is kind of rising up the political agenda precisely because it's now people who think of themselves as being on pretty good incomes who are finding they can't have access to these things that perhaps their parents did. I mean, I, I know quite a lot of people who were who, uh, privately educated themselves who know for a fact they will never be able to have that option for their children. 
whether that matters in terms of the general society is, is a whole different question. I think a lot of people would argue, well, why should we care? Um, but I think if you, if you were running a school and you had any sense, you'd perhaps be a little bit worried about the fact that your customer base is turning against you. Well, there you have it, listeners. A uh, small problem, supposedly for posh people, really a problem for everybody. Thanks, but John. mostly posh people. <laughs> Thanks, John. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Maughan.